Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy. Um, if you don't know where that book is and you're looking for it, uh, you'll soon be very familiar with it because today we're beginning our fall series in 1 Timothy, um, and we're actually going to be in it until early next year. Our, our plan is to spend 20 or so weeks in this letter uh, in a series that we've entitled Living as God's Household. And we're going to take our time going through this book because it covers a range of important topics on how Christians ought to live as part of God's family. And so before we get into God's word, I do want to encourage you in one thing uh, might be really helpful this week uh, to read a chapter of Timothy uh, beginning tomorrow, uh, read a chapter a day in order to orient us as we gather next Sunday. First Timothy is six chapters long, uh, Monday to Saturday, six days. So read a chapter a day, jot down what you see, write down observations, make note of your questions, draw connections, write out your application. How does this apply to you? Uh, respond to it in prayer. And one way that we want to encourage you to do this is we have downstairs a handful of these um, scripture journals, ESV scripture journals available. Uh, this one in particular is for First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, and we have them downstairs, a limited uh, number of them. And uh, basically what it is, is on, on one hand, you have the um, scripture passage and then a blank page on the other. And so if this would be helpful to you as we get into this book over the next five months, please make sure to pick one up. But of course, you don't need to use this. Uh, you can, of course, use your own notebooks. I know some of you love having notebooks and write, you know, the right pens and pencils and color-coded highlighters and tabs and, and all of that, uh, which is great. Others of you simply do it on your phone. Some of you love to do work at your computer. And so, uh, in whatever way you want to engage First Timothy, we want to encourage you to do that, but we want to encourage you to engage First Timothy. And so this morning, we're beginning by looking at the opening two verses. And if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. Uh, standing is not a mere formality. It's an act of worship. It shows the posture of our hearts that we are ready to receive and read God's word with reverence for it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our, Father, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me in prayer once more. Father, we stand for the reading of your word, but now for the preaching of your word, would you submit our hearts under it, that we would have attentive listening ears. God, this is a time of instruction, but also transformation. And so I pray, Lord, that you would both um, do a work in our hearts, but also do a work in our minds. I pray that the two would never be divorced or disconnected, but would be one as you, by your spirit, illumine truths to us, and then apply them and empower us to live by them. Bless our time now. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember my time uh, in youth group and even into college. Um, in that season of my life, um, about 25 years or so ago, uh, the two movies that made it into every sermon illustration uh, was either something from Saving Private Ryan or something from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. 
Um, now, I, I, I remember that being so popular, or even a few years after I graduated, it was pretty popular. Now it's 2023, and if you ask most of our youth students now, they would have no idea what those movies are. They're essentially ancient. They might as well be in black and white. They're, you know, isn't that, aren't those movies from the same time as like Citizen Kane or Casablanca or something? Movie illustrations, you know, they are very time-bound, but... There's one franchise of movies that came out while I was in college and for over 20 years, over two decades, has still dominated in the box office and it's still pretty relevant. Can you guess what that movie is, that movie franchise is? The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> what began as a movie about street racing in LA has now become a franchise about combating global terrorism and flying cars out into space. The movies have become outrageously exaggerated, uh, but they still attract millions of viewers. And the question is, why is this? Well, on the one hand, sure, explosions and car chases still make for great entertainment, but I think there's something deeper at work. Because if you've ever seen one of these movies, you may know that at the core of each film is a central theme. It's the theme that the famed Vin Diesel says again and again, it's the theme of family. Actor Sung Kang, who plays Han, uh, said this in an interview about the films. He said, if I had to stand behind our theme and what makes Fast successful, family encompasses everything. Not just the theme in the movie, but the people involved, the crew and the cast, the audience has all become our family, right? Now, this family theme is prominent in these movies, and I think Deep down inside, what resonates with people are not just fast cars, but the desire, the longing to belong to family, be known by family, loved by family. You see, whether you come from a healthy, supportive family or a broken, dysfunctional one, our hearts desire to be in a family. Now, of all the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church, the Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy chooses to use the metaphor of family. That's how he wants us to understand what life in the church is like. And so our sermon series over the next five months is entitled Living as God's Household. Now, this isn't just a catchy phrase. It actually comes from this letter itself. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul pens these letters as he writes and summarizes the purpose of his book. 1 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Why did Paul write 1 Timothy? Well, he tells you, he says, so that Christians know how to behave in God's house, how Christians ought to live and conduct themselves as a spiritual family. Now, why do we need to spend five months focusing on this theme? Why here in this moment at Cornerstone is this worth spending this amount of time on? And the reason is, as the Lord continues to grow our church, as we grow in increasing complexity as a body, as there are new transitions, as our church endures future seasons ahead of us, as familiar faces leave and new faces enter, we need to navigate as a unified spiritual family. And I sense this is already being challenged in our church, especially as we get older year by year. Some of you may know this, most of you probably don't. This past Tuesday, Cornerstone celebrated our 22nd birthday. 
September 12, 2021, Cornerstone left Zion Presbyterian Church, which is the Korean church, and became an independent church. And as I was thinking about our church's history and I was reflecting on it and began looking at our membership roster and our attendees, I came to realize um, that our congregation can actually be divided pretty equally among four different groups, a fourth in each. Uh, the first uh, fourth are the members um, who have been here since day one. Some call uh, the OG Cornerstone core group, the group that began at Zion. I mean, if you cut them, they will bleed Zion. <laughs> and then there's another fourth of you who joined the church while Cornerstone was renting, while we were sojourners in the land. We were renting from either across North Penn High School or that blue converted warehouse in Chalfont. Some of you, about a fourth, joined some time while Cornerstone was in exile. Then came the great exodus across 309 into the promised land of Lansdale, which initiated what I call the spike of 2019. And in one year, our church doubled in growth. I mean, others call it uh, the birth of young adults at Cornerstone, but essentially some, about a fourth of you came in that period. And then the last fourth of you came as a result of what I like to call the great COVID rebound, which is after our door shut and we reopened, about another fourth of you joined the church in that time. That's probably in the last two years or so. And if I paint the categories in this way, all of you can identify with a time in which you became a part of this church. Now, I lay this out to you to show you that across 22 years, people have joined the church and people have left the church. Pastors have come into the church and pastors have gone from the church. Officers have been raised, officers have stepped down, buildings have been moved into, buildings have been left. But what has kept the church together primarily is the fact that we are a family of faith, believers bound and held together by Jesus. And if we're gonna face new challenges, if we're gonna overcome new obstacles as we move into the future, we need to keep being a family of faith. We are God's household. We are not a country club. We are not a religious institution. We are not a startup business. We are not a well-oiled organization. And that's why it's worth spending five months in this letter to learn what it means to live as the household of God. So with that extended introduction, let me make just one more comment as we jump into our passage today. Uh, my preaching style, I think, uh, leans on the slow <laughs> and the small passages and uh, deep reflection and meditation. If you've been here at Cornerstone for a while, you know that I really like to take passages and marinate deeply in them. I like to take my time going through them. Uh, but I'm gonna challenge myself, and I think for the good of the body, I'm gonna change how we approach First Timothy, which is uh, there's gonna be slightly more teaching emphasis than I normally do. And then we're gonna slow down after we spend a little time explaining something and try to draw out implications for our lives and for our church. And so that's kind of where we're headed over the next five months as we spend time in 1 Timothy. So with all that being said, let's begin by looking at verse 1. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now this may sound uh, the same as Paul's other letters and the introductions he gives there, but you need to know it's similar, it's not the same. 
Now, what's similar about it is how Paul identifies himself. He is an apostle, which means as an apostle, he is an authorized messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a legitimate spokesperson on behalf of Jesus who's been called and commissioned by the Savior himself. And so when he speaks, it's as if Jesus himself speaks. Now that's what's similar. What's different about this particular introduction from other letters Paul writes is this. Whereas in other epistles, Paul introduces himself as an apostle by the will of God, as I have listed here a few examples. In 1 Timothy, Paul says he's an apostle by command of God. Now that expression in the Greek, by command of God, harkens back to a royal kingly decree. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle, a messenger of Jesus, not by self-appointment, I've called myself to it, not by appointment by the church, people called me to it, but by royal decree of God himself, which means when Paul writes to Timothy and to the church that Timothy pastors, what he gives isn't merely good advice. What's found in this book isn't merely wise words or helpful suggestions on here are some tips and tricks how to grow your church and do church in your cultural context. No, what Timothy receives from Paul are the royal decrees of God. This is how, as a church, you must live. And so what Paul says, he says with God's authority. Okay, if that's all true, what does that mean for us? Well, it means at least two things. The first implication is this. What Paul writes as an apostle should be received with the same authority as the rest of Scripture. Now, that's a mouthful, but... Let me explain what this means. It may already be crystal clear to some of you, but I think it's worth taking the time to uh, refresh ourselves on this. When it comes to the Bible, there is no part of it that is more elevated or more authoritative than another part of the Bible. Now, you may agree with that, but I think sometimes knowingly or unknowingly, we create a hierarchy in our minds, a hierarchy of authority when it comes to the Bible. And so, for example, uh, for the children in the room, uh, who should you listen to in your family? Who should you listen to in your family? And you know the answer is mom and dad, because they're my parents. They have parental authority over you. Okay, let's say we asked your parents to leave or we had them close their ears. And I said to you, okay, now which one should you really listen to? <laughs> like really listen to when it really comes down to it. You all have an answer. Yeah, we, we listen to mom and dad, but there's one that we really listen to. Now, it's different in every family. In my family, it was my dad. In your family, it might be your mom. But I bring this up because sometimes we treat the Bible this way when we shouldn't. Although we say, yeah, God speaks to us in all of the Bible, sometimes in our minds, there are parts that we like really listen to and there are parts that we hold a little less firmly. And so maybe the Old Testament is something that we understand as part of God's word. And yet it's the Old Testament. It's kind of, you know, a lot of stories. Jesus is not really in it. It's super old. And so, yeah, we believe it's God's word, but sometimes it has a little less authority in our lives. And then sometimes maybe after that, we think of the letters of Paul and the other apostles. Yeah, yeah, those letters are really important. They teach us doctrine and theology. And yeah, we should hold to them. But, but really what has authority are the gospels because in the gospels, we get Jesus's words, the recorded words of Jesus. And sometimes without realizing we have this hierarchy at work in us. And I know this is true. Just a few years ago here at this church, I was talking with uh, one of our people and she asked me a question. 
And as I began answering the question, she actually stopped me and said, no, that, that's what Paul says. I'm asking you what Jesus says, because aren't his words more important? I think some of us, we actually have this bias at work in us. Let me illustrate how it's actually prevalent in the churches by using the example, a sensitive example, but the example of the Christian teaching on homosexuality. This is a sensitive topic. It requires a lot of wisdom and compassion when you talk with specific individual people about it. But just as a whole, when we talk about the Christian ethic, the biblical ethic, the answer is clear. Homosexuality, according to scripture, is a violation of God's ordained design for human sexuality, which is and should be between one man and one woman. Now, we can teach that as the biblical Christian sexual ethic. The pushback, the objection, often employs a hierarchical um, view of scripture. Because I've had conversations with people about this, and the first question they ask is, well, where does it say it in the Bible? And you open up the first half of this Bible and you're like, oh, there are a lot of places in the Old Testament that forbid it. Well, what's the response? Well, that's the Old Testament. It's a dismissal of this authority because, oh, that's so outdated. It's so old. Well, is there anywhere else in the Bible? And then you turn to the epistles and you show them from how Paul and the apostles wrote about homosexuality as a sin and and they say, well, no, no, well, that, that, that's so cultural, <laughs> right? That, that's given in its context. And in the end, they're asking you this question. Can you show me where Jesus himself outright clearly says homosexuality is a sin? And why are they dismissing some passages and asking for others? Because they view the recorded words of Jesus as more authoritative than Paul's. And Paul's is less authoritative than Jesus. But if what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 is true, if he is an apostle by the royal decree and command of God, and when he writes and speaks as if it's as if God himself writes and speaks, then what we receive in his writings has the same authority as what we receive in all the rest of scripture. Church, this is important for us to keep and understand. It's really important, actually, why the church must be preaching through both Old Testament and New Testaments. The Old Testament stories, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament poems, but also the New Testament and its gospels and its letters. Because through the whole counsel of the Bible, we receive God's word and we're built up as a family of faith. That's the first implication. If Apostle Paul really is a messenger of God. The second implication is this. God speaks authoritatively on both theological and practical matters in the church. Now, what does that mean? I think sometimes Christians have the wrong impression that God really cares about doctrine. He cares about theology. He cares about making sure we have it right. But then he's not so concerned about like the practical things in the church, like what the church does and the ministries that we do. Oh, that's, that's, that's up to us. But when Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus in verse one, and then he goes on to pen one of the most practical books in the New Testament. What is that showing about God's heart? It shows that God cares both that the church believes the right things, but also that the church behaves the right way. To be a biblical church doesn't mean we're just concerned with what's coming out of the pulpit and what's being preached, whether it's correct and faithful but also it means we must seek to do ministry in a way that's faithful to God's word. 
Let me use an example to see what you think here. Do you, be, do you believe it matters whether uh, we say something like this? Uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's one statement. Well, what if I say Jesus was a man who lived a perfect life and then God honored him by elevating him to the status of God? Now, hopefully you hear that and you say, well, one is true and the other isn't. God speaks to one, and so one is right and one is wrong. Well, that may be clear. Well, what about an example like this? And I need to be careful here. And I don't want to offend it needlessly, but Paul will later address it. And so I feel confident in giving it. Well, what about this example? What about if a woman stands in the pulpit on a Sunday morning and preaches God's word? Is there a right or wrong there? Is the issue of Jesus' divinity and humanity one that we should debate whether it's true or not, but whether a woman preaches from God's word? Is that just up for the church to decide? Oh, you know, different denominations are going to do different things, and ah, we're a little conservative, and so, yeah, I'm maybe not comfortable with it, but that person's, you know, a little progressive. I think it's fine. Or does God speak just as authoritatively to the issue as to whether or not Jesus is fully God and fully man? Now, this specific example comes up later in 1 Timothy 2, and so if you want to know what Paul has to say, come back in a few weeks. But my point is this, God doesn't just care about what we believe, but also how we as a church behaves. He doesn't just care about what's preached, he cares about the ministry that's practiced. You see, a truly faithful biblical household of God should do its best to be directed by God's word and all it does. Now, of course, you need to know this. You need to know the fact that God's word doesn't speak to every single thing in the church. I mean, should the coffee in the fellowship hall continue to be the, the Keurig machine or should we switch to hiring personal baristas to make pour overs for us? Oh man, I wish God's word spoke to this issue, but it doesn't. But should the church create spaces for fellowship because fellowship is vital for Christian discipleship because believers need to run the race together and not alone? Well, absolutely, God's word speaks authoritatively to that. You see, a church that understands apostolic authority in the Bible will try its best not just to align its theology with God's word, but its practices and its philosophy of ministry. And it won't be a church that desires to give into every whim of the attendees' consumeristic expectations. What Paul lays out in this letter is not just suggestions for us to do church. It's God's directive. Okay, so if Paul is indeed an apostle of Christ Jesus, these two implications are important for us to know. Well, then let's move on to verse two. Paul then, he goes from identifying himself to identifying the recipient, and he writes this, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, this is the first time that Paul uses the spiritual metaphor in the family, and he uses this intimate language, my true child in the faith to show the strong spiritual bond he had with Timothy. Now, to know the history, um, Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is going on various uh, missionary journeys, and along one of them, he comes across Timothy. And he's so impressed with Timothy, he connects with Timothy, and he wants to use Timothy, and so Timothy joins him, and they continue on their missionary uh, journey. What I want you to pay attention to is this, the grounds of the spiritual relationship. Paul writes this, he says about Timothy, my true child in the faith. 
And that's so important because what brought these two people together and the spiritual bond and connection they had is not that they were the same age. Paul was obviously older than Timothy. It's not that they were the same ethnicity. Timothy's father was a Greek. It's not because they had the shared same common interests. It's not because they had similar personalities or they laughed at the same things and they joked in the same ways. Their connection wasn't something artificial or superficial or obvious. Paul was Timothy's spiritual mentor because they belonged to the family of faith. Now, if this is true, here is the implication for us as a church. We need more Timothys and Pauls. We need more Paul and Timothy type of relationships in the household of God. We need more spiritual fathers and spiritual sons, spiritual mothers and spiritual daughters. Now, let me be clear. Paul didn't replace the role that his own family played in Timothy's life. By saying that Paul was Timothy's spiritual father, it didn't mean that Timothy's family had no place, no prominence in his spiritual development. We read in uh, 2 Timothy 1, Paul writes these words. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. You have to know this about Timothy. He was a tremendously blessed man. Why? It wasn't because he enjoyed riches. It wasn't because he avoided suffering in life. It wasn't because everything he touched turned into gold. He was tremendously blessed because his mother and his grandmother were believers and they discipled him in the home. See, how did Timothy grow to be this Christian figure who eventually went on to pastor Apostle Paul's church? It wasn't because Timothy growing up was part of a vibrant children's program that threw together great VBSs and had amazing body motions. And then when he was old enough, he transitioned into the best youth group in the world. There were age-relevant sermons and lots of peers his age that he could hang out with. Oh man, in the summer and winter retreats at the youth group, they were so awesome. That was not the reason why. Timothy was spiritually blessed and grew in the faith because the word of God was cherished, it was taught, and was lived out in the home, in the place that truly mattered. And so we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, that's Lois and Eunice, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Discipleship in the church cannot replace discipleship in the home. But it can supplement it, which is why Timothy enjoyed such incredible, rich blessings because not only did he receive discipleship from his mother and grandmother, but from this older, mature believer in his life. Dear saints of Cornerstone, if the church is a family of faith, then these kinds of spiritual bonds are vital for the spiritual growth of the whole household. These Paul and Timothy bonds are vital for the spiritual growth of everybody. So first, let me address the younger folk in our church. It's easy in a church to look out and look only for your peers, people who are the same age, people who are going through the same things in life with you 
Now, when social bonds are all that you're seeking, yeah, that's perfectly fine. But if you're only coming to church to form social bonds, then the church will never be a spiritual family to you. It'll only ever be a social hub. Church will only be a place that you commit to as long as it's convenient and easy and fun and engaging and interesting. And once a church no longer provides those things for you and your life stage demographic, then what? You'll move on to the next church. But if a church is a spiritual family, then you don't just look to see who your peers are to make friends. You don't just look for brothers and sisters in Christ. You look for spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Look for those who know a little bit more of how heavy the cross is because they've carried it a little longer than you have. Now, how many of you who've visited other churches before coming here to Cornerstone can honestly say that you took that into consideration? How many of you have entered a church, looked around to see how many people are the same age, how many people look to be right in your life stage? And how many of you went into the church to see how many graying hairs there are? You see, if you really want to grow spiritually, if you're really actually concerned about your spiritual growth and health, then you need more than peers in your life. You need spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. And to be honest, and I'm not saying this just as pastor at Cornerstone, maybe I am, I am a little biased, but I really think this church is a unique place to be, especially among um, second generation Asians. Because there are a few other places that have such a distribution of life stage and age ranges. You see, particularly our bridge folk, our, our young adults, do you wanna have friends in the church? Friends in the church is very important. But the reality is you guys have friends in this church and you have friends outside of this church. So let me ask this question. How likely is it that you have spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers outside of this church? And if the answer is that you don't, then I would encourage you to seek them out here. Now let me address our older folk. It's easy to look out always at a congregation and see all those who are younger than you and making you feel your age and feel like you have nothing to connect with them, nothing to offer them. And the reality is, yes, if you're trying to be their friends, then yes, you have nothing to offer them. But what our younger folk need is not just another friend. They need spiritual fathers and mothers. They don't just need people to come alongside and see things from the same vantage point they are in. They need somebody who's traveled a little further down the road and can see from a different view. And they need people to say, this is my son, this is my daughter in the faith. And so if this church is going to continue to be a healthy household, a faithful spiritual family, we need at some point for our mature members to start investing in the less mature. Now I get it. Because on this side of eternity, all of us here, even the ones with the most gray hair, are still growing in faith. But at one point, you need to understand, how does God grow our faith? He grows our faith as we begin to disciple and mentor and train and encourage and build up and care for others. You know, when Paul is writing to Timothy about uh, strong, healthy, vibrant churches, he basically assigns two things. On the one hand, in Titus, he says, what do you need to have a strong, faithful healthy, vibrant church, you need godly elders and faithful deacons. But then the second thing he says is the Titus 2 model. Paul says, you know what you need? You need older men who are urging the younger men. You need older women who are so training the younger women. Like this is what's going to make a strong, healthy church that will endure through the ages. 
Have you considered this a part of your discipleship? There are some of you, as I look out, who have sat in so many Bible studies that if you ever sit in another one, it's very rare that you'll hear something that you've never heard before. As I look out, I know that there are some of you who have heard far more, double, triple the amount of sermons than I, your pastor, have ever preached in my life. That's wonderful. But then what are you doing with that? Will you only be a tank that is continually getting full to the point where there's all this overflow wastefully falling by your side? Or will you begin to pour it out onto others? Here is my point. The church needs those who are willing to be Timothy's and those who are willing to be Paul's. And in this way, we will grow as a family of faith. And finally, we get to the last verse of the greeting where Paul ends like this, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Once again, Paul ends this greeting, not in the same way he does the other letters, but in a similar way. It's similar because in other letters, Paul usually says grace and peace, and he says it here. But it's different because Paul adds an extra word. It's the word mercy. Paul says this, before I get to the meat of my letter, let me wish upon you this trifold gospel blessing upon Timothy and all those who would receive what he has to say. Here's what we must know. In order for God's household to abound and thrive, it won't happen simply because we obey Paul's letters perfectly, nor because we believe all the theology he writes down for us. I mean, some of us may be under the pressure, like, how will this church do? Well, well, we just need to do what Paul says and believe all that he teaches. But the church ultimately isn't sustained by our behavior or our beliefs. What will sustain the family of faith? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the blessings of God that come from it. There are three blessings, gospel blessings, Paul points out. First is the gospel blessing of grace. The good news of grace will sustain the family of God because when you realize that salvation isn't something you've earned, you've not been good enough to receive it, merit it, or earn it, but it's freely given from the goodness and the grace of God, then gratitude and praise fill your hearts. We become this kind of people, people who are meeting together to remember and rejoice at God's marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Second is the gospel blessing of mercy. The good news of mercy will sustain the family of God because when you receive mercy, you can only do so when you understand, when you admit, when you confess that you are nothing more than spiritual beggars who are desperately poor and needy. And oh my, what humility comes into the church. That there is no one more righteous than you. And there is none more unrighteous than you. So you neither stand over anybody nor do you stand under anybody, but each of us humbly coming to the Lord empty-handed, knowing that when we leave the Lord, we walk away full of the abundant mercies that he delights to pour upon his people. That will keep the people of God together. And lastly and third, the gospel blessing of peace. The good news of peace will sustain the family of God because when we're reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, we are therefore reconciled to one another. When gospel peace rules and reigns in the church, 
the dividing wall of hostility, grudges you have against one another, bitterness directed at people, resentment held against others, all of it becomes overcome by the peace Christ has accomplished for us. Believers, we can live together with one another. We can overcome disagreement and we can overcome division. We can extend forgiveness even when it is not deserved because Christ has forgiven us. And we enjoy peace with God and it's reflected in peace with one another. See, friends, as we close, we need to remember that what holds this church together is not your effort in believing all the right things or your diligence in behaving all the right ways. What holds this church together is the grace, mercy, and peace that come from God, our Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. First Timothy teaches us how to live as God's household, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that will sustain us as God's household. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?